Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. The Medicine Path Podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener-supported project, so please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicine path, or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Brian James. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. This episode marks the three-year anniversary of The Medicine Path. You know, it's amazing. I didn't have a clear idea of what this podcast would be when I started it. All I knew is that I wanted an excuse to talk to some of the teachers and interesting people that I've met on my journey of healing, growth, and transformation this past decade or so. I had no idea what the podcast was going to become when I started it, And I definitely had no intentions to become a broadcaster or media personality of any type. I'm basically an intuitive feeling type person. So expressing myself in words has never come easily. And putting myself out there in this way has definitely stretched my comfort zone. When I speak with people, I'm often at the edges of my thinking about a particular topic. And listening back, I sometimes cringe at my less than polished presentation. When people write to me about the podcast, they usually comment on how much they appreciate my approach to interviewing and tell me that I often ask the questions that they're thinking about as they listen. People will say, you're really good at this interviewing thing. And I got to tell you, I'm always a little taken aback. But what I think people are responding to is the thing that's kept me doing this for three years, even at times when I thought it was too much trouble to keep doing. I mean, every podcast takes many hours of preparation and production time, from reading the books by guests, watching and listening to interviews with them, to scheduling the interview, recording it, and then editing, uploading, and promoting every episode. I've never made more than a couple hundred bucks a month from my Patreon, so you gotta figure I must be working for way less than minimum wage. So what keeps me going, and what are people who appreciate the podcast responding to? The thing I keep coming back to is my curiosity. I'm endlessly curious about the topics I explore on this podcast, and I think that's what shows in my interviews. I'm usually getting curious in real time with the person, and that's what lends the conversations their spontaneity, authenticity, and sometimes depth. 
some of the bigger guests I've had who have no doubt been interviewed hundreds of times will often tell me at the end of our interview that it was one of the best ones that they've had. And I think that's because I've put in the time studying the topic in their work, but mainly I think it's because I'm genuinely curious about what they do and how they think about it, much more so than promoting my own ideas about a given topic. Of course, I've had some guests that can get into lecture mode, and there have been times where I didn't release an episode because the interview never really turned into a conversation. And you can hear some of those in the Patreon archives, but some of them I just decided to let evaporate into the ether, just like any other real-world conversation that I might have. I've had to take a break at times due to what I think of as expert exhaustion. Sometimes I just get so tired of listening to people who claim to have it all figured out. And podcasts are full of these types. And I think that it gives people a certain amount of comfort listening to these so-called experts lay out their theories on how to live your best life and all that. But I much prefer talking to folks who, as recent guest Martin Shaw put it, embrace the authenticity of their incompleteness. I certainly do. And I hope that it's refreshing to you to listen to me explore the struggles and joys of living a full and authentic life with others who have had some well-earned wisdom and uncertainty of their own to share. And I hope above all that these conversations inspire you to stay curious about life. You know, I think it takes courage to admit that you don't know everything and that you're still working on yourself. You know, I think of it as the courage to be curious. I think this lends you more credibility because it's actually authentic. As James Hillman once joked, when you find someone who's fully integrated, send me a postcard. So I think we need less experts and more authentically human beings. And I hope to continue bringing these conversations as long as my curiosity about life holds out. And it doesn't show any sign of flagging at this point. So if you do appreciate this podcast, please consider throwing a few bucks my way. There are links in the show notes that will lead you to the best places to do that. And if you're short on cash, give back just a little of your time by writing a review and sharing it with your friends on social media. So this episode features a conversation I had with archetypal astrologer Saffron Rossi. Saffron has spent her entire life steeped in literature, religion, and mythology, and holds degrees in all these areas of study. Her writing and studies focus on archetypal psychology, astrology, alchemy, goddess traditions, and Greek myth. She's a member of the core faculty at Pacifica Graduate Institute in the Jungian and Archetypal Studies program. She also offers private consultations as an archetypal psychological astrologer. You can find out more about Saffron at thearchetypaleye.com. You can check for a link in the show notes. Saffron and I had what I think is a really great conversation. And I think that whether you're a practicing astrologer or, like me, simply somebody interested in astrology as another ancient and wonderfully mysterious map of the soul, I think you'll get a lot out of this episode. We talk about how she got started in psychology and astrology and who influenced her to bring these approaches together, including her meeting with the late great archetypal psychologist and writer James Hillman. You know, depth in archetypal psychology is one of those areas that I'm really interested in and endlessly curious about. So this conversation was a lot of fun for me, and I hope it is for you too. So please, sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Saffron Rossi on The Medicine Path.
Well, I'm here with Saffron Rossi. Saffron, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Really, thank you, Brian, for the invitation. Um, it's it's always um, a treat to be able to have a conversation about ideas and and people uh, people whose work uh, really inspire us. So uh, I'm looking forward to talking about some of these things with you. Great. You know, uh, I became aware of you because my wife's a professional astrologer and uh, we've been together for about 15 years and we've always had the kind of relationship where there's a lot of cross-pollinization and depth psychology is something that I've been into for a while. And so discovering all of the descendants of Jung and their work and, uh, you know, Debbie's really into the history of astrology and all that. So I've been picking up some of the astrology through osmosis. She gives me little readings uh, spontaneously all of the time. When I talk about something that's going on in my life, she goes, oh, well, of course, Venus right. is trying your Mercury or, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, she's been picking up some of the depth psychology from me. And um, it's an area where she's starting to dig into more and more because she sees that it'll uh, help deepen her work with her clients in her consultations. And so she came across your work and we listened to one of your lectures together on archetypal astrology and the work of James Hillman and how that informs your approach to astrology. And I really appreciated the way that you were able to take Hillman's ideas and present them in a way that felt really clear and relatable because mm. Hillman can be a really difficult writer and thinker to get into, unless I think you have a really strong foundation in kind of classical Jungian psychology. Um, so I really just wanted to praise you for your ability to take some of those complex ideas of his and put them together in a really clear and relatable way. It was, mm. It's really great. And I think it's a great entry point for a lot of people interested in this work. Thank you so much. It, um... Hillman's work has been really central in many ways for me and um, finding a way to translate, I don't even know if that's the right word, but finding a way to incorporate some of his vitalizing and rich and powerful ways of thinking about the psyche and what soul making is about in life um, and what it is to be psychologically aware. Um, he, he, he shows up so little uh, in astrological conversation. Um, and given my orientation to astrology as necessarily needing um, imaginative language by which to move into the symbols. I think Hillman is a, a really um, important teacher in that way. So, um, so that that particular talk that you're referencing, um, it um, I was endeavoring to try to um, talk about Hellman's really sort of unique and radical ways of looking at what the psyche does and, and, and weaving that into 
how we, you know, archetypally and psychologically oriented astrologers, like what we're doing and what it is that we're kind of reaching for and and, and working with um, in the symbolic art, but then in relationship to the person that comes to us, you know, looking for insight, um, understanding, uh, clarity of some kind. Mm. You know, um, I wonder if we could just go back in time a little bit and talk about your journey toward this kind of approach. And so if you could tell us a little bit about how you initially got into astrology and then where you encountered the work of James Hillman, that would be great. Yeah. So I encountered Hillman's work first as a graduate student at Pacifica Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara. So I uh, went through the mythological studies program there. And that's where my that's what my PhD is in uh, myth, with an emphasis in depth psychology. And so I um, hadn't really heard of Hillman until I had applied to be in graduate school. And I was in my early twenties, and um, um, but always had a lifelong passion for myth. And so I knew that this is what I wanted to study. And so it was in the program that I was um, introduced to his work by uh, two professors that we had. Uh, one was uh, Dr. Jeanette Perry, who is an archetypal psychologist and a Canadian, um, but uh, Montreal. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also uh, Glenn Slater, who is also an archetypal psychologist and professor at Pacifica. Um, and so they were... Um, the two that really um, represented um, the significance of Hillman's work in the field of depth psychology. And then the second piece is, you know, Hillman, for those that are somewhat familiar with him, uh, like yourself, he's deeply mythological, isn't he? Like all of his writing. So being in a myth program that had an emphasis in depth psychology I mean, Hillman's the most mythological depth psychologist. And so he was a very natural fit in, in the sort of course of the study. So, so that was my, so I studied him in that way. I was really fortunate to be at Pacifica at a time when Hillman would actually do sabbaticals there. And so I had him as a teacher in the classroom. Um, so that was kind of awe-inspiring and a bit nerve-wracking because of just the, um, you know, his genius and he was a very sort of direct uh, speaker. So, um, so that, so that all, so Pacifica was the ground uh, where I was exposed to Hillman, both in in his written work and then uh, directly as a teacher and a person. And then Astrology came in to my purview when I fi- when I was working on my dissertation, um, but mostly toward the end. And I think part of what was going on was, as you know, when you've toward the end of any major creative project, um, there can often be a a sort of falling away of like interest, like all the libido, all the energy (laughs) that was like going into this project. Once it's toward the end, it's kind of like, I finished (laughs) that 
I don't think there's a single thing I care about in the world. Like there's this strange, mm. um, well, I, well, it's not strange, but, but it, it's that sort of the falling away of, 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 of any psychic energy for anything. And I kind of felt that way at the end of my dissertation. And, um, at the time I was, um, I was working in the archives, uh, Opus Archives and Research Center, which is actually located on the campuses of Pacifica. No, is that, it, that's the Joseph Campbell archives? That's right. And it also had the James Hellman collection. And mm-hmm. so I was the assistant to the director and she had tickets to, to go to a talk in Santa Barbara that Rick Tarnas was giving, not a big one, you know, not, not, a, it wasn't a huge like Pacifica conference. It was actually just put together by a group of people who were affiliated with Pacifica, but at the university club. And so Tarnas was coming down to do like a two hour, much smaller group thing. So I'm sitting there. I, I was, my boss couldn't go. She gave me her ticket. And so I I'm there and, um, and Tarnas starts talking I don't even remember exactly what I still, I have the notes somewhere, but he, he starts laying out some of the themes in terms of the current transits and then breaking that down archetypally and then talking about myth. And something just happened for me where I realized that all these years of study in the myth program, uh, um, I mean, explicitly studying the mythic and religious symbols and, and narratives and images from cultures all around the globe, and then understanding Jung and Hellman's archetypal model of the psyche. Listening to Tarnas, I realized that astrology was an, was a practice where those things were wedded together. Um, in a way that, you know, is a sort of meditative art, a, 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 a profoundly healing tool for self-inquiry and, and understanding. Um, and so something just happened where I, I saw the relationship between these three things. And so all of a sudden where there was no libido, there was, <laughs> it was like my imagination got really, um, immediately fired by this. And so that led to my beginning to study it. So, you know, and then odds, you know, amazing synchronicities happen. So for example, my neighbor at the time was an astrologer and she had an old school correspondence course. You remember those where like you would like send away. So she had this whole astrology correspondence course in these big, big binders with the answer keys. And so she basically lent them to me indefinitely. And so I just started to study and, um, do you remember who the course was from? I don't, I don't, um, no, and it was really like I think it might have been printed out on like a dot matrix printer. Like it was really like it, from the past. <laughs> did it have uh, cassette tapes in the back? No, there were no cassette tapes. No, it was just the, just chapter after chapter of information and then exercises and then you know your little test and so it, I mean I was really starting from the the ground like memorizing the glyphs and all of the different symbols and the different keywords, really rudimentary. But 
I already had all of the all of my studies in archetypal psychology and mythology. So like I was just trying to get into the way that it was communicated in this ancient art. But I mm. but I was very quickly able to, you know, make the connections. Yeah. Um, well, so I just that, if yeah. I could just pause for a moment. Yeah, that yeah. that um that experience of going to see uh Rick Tarnas and everything just kind of coming together for you. Um, I really have a felt sense of what that was like, because I've had those kind of experiences before. It's like we're, excuse the pun, totally unintentional, but where the stars align and <laughs> things just like click together for yeah, you, right? right? Like all these different threads are all of a sudden part of a, a larger tapestry. And there, there is something about astrology that I think is really quite unique. Like, so there's an I maybe uh, we could help expand people's understanding of uh, Jung and Hillman's view of what what the archetypes are and how they live in the psyche and how they function and stuff. But there's an idea that myths are uh, an expression of these archetypal patterns and energies in the form of stories, and you know stories and myths are still quite uh, ephemeral. Uh, they're always changing. They're always morphing. There's different versions of Greek myths and all that, but there's something about the projection of the archetypal patterns and energies onto the planets in the sky that makes it more real. It's it's like it's crossed the boundary of some kind, and all of a sudden it's there, and it's there for all time for everyone to observe and engage with. That mm -hmm. is quite unique, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this... this um you know, the, the way the planets um, are uh, in a way sort of they're concrete and imaginal um, or symbolic um, bodies or carriers for the archetypal imagination. And they are present uh, in terms of our daily, nightly lived experience. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's quite astonishing the, the, the way in which the, the celestial firmament I mean, has always for all cultures really been the abode of the divine powers, at, at least one of them. I mean, so is the earth and then the underworld, but the heavens ha have, have always been associated with, um, the, the, the powers of the universe, um, and so the way we can relate to that, um, you know, for Tarnas, I mean, Tarnas's um, extraordinary contribution to the, the, the melding of these worlds, astrology, um, transpersonal psychology, but also Jungian psychology is really um, so important because he makes the explicit sort of psychological shift, which is that you know, as he says in Cosmos and Psyche, his sort of opus magnum, I suppose, although his book, Passion of a Western Mind, is equally an opus. So <laughs> he's got two, two opi, I suppose. Um, he, what, what Tarnas says is that astrology is archetypally predictive, and yet we have this extraordinary uh, synchronicity that is with us every day with the movements of the planets, the visible planets, um, and you know the events and the um, 
um, perspectives that we bring to life. So yeah, it, it's 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 really there's a lot of mystery, you know, to, to um, the astrological art and the, um, the, it, the 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 phenomenology of it as well. Yeah, the phenomenology of it is what really kind of boggles my mind because mm -hmm. I'm used to engaging with things that have a, a, a symbolic meaning to them um, and things that receive our projection of these archetypal movements within us or impulses within us. But with the planets and the stars, there seems to be a two-way influence or something like they they're receiving our projection we're putting these archetypes onto them but they're also deserving of those archetypal designations in some way and they haven't they seem to have an influence on us which is something that blows my mind every time debbie goes into my chart i'm amazed at how accurately it describes my life and experience it's incredible mm -hmm. Yeah, well, this uh, and and I mean, this goes to, you know, the Jung's, um, uh, you know, idea about the nature of the psyche being archetypally patterned, and and by psyche he wasn't just referring to our individual, you know, sense of self, but um, life itself, nature. And, 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 and the archetypes, you know, point to the instinctive, um, most biological primary aspects of our nature, as well as what we would call the most spiritual, archetypal, symbolic, you know, uh, capacities of, of the mind and experience. But, but um, the connection of our individual experience um, and these planets as symbolizing um, the movement of and, and the interrelationship and configurations of certain archetypal energies and patterns at any given time um, really is extraordinary. And, and how our this practice has developed um, over a very long um, uh, we could say attentiveness, a sort of qualitative attentiveness to the correlations that exist between human events, celestial movements, and then how do we come to understand that? So that, that's where the whole idea of astrology is really um, being about, or, or it has the, the worldview or the, the, the worldview of astrology is really about time as being qualitative, right? There are qualities to time and those qualities um, um, are descriptive of and live in um, people and places and uh, historical events. It's as if everything is kind of colored by these particular qualities. And in a way, that's what, that's another way that we can understand archetypes is that they're particular qualities of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Qualities of consciousness. And I also think of them sometimes as modes of being, like when yes. we're, when we're tuned into a particular archetypal energy and it's not something that we're necessarily doing consciously, right. although there are ways to invoke different uh, energetic patterns in us. Um, 
it really shapes the way we engage with the world. Yes, absolutely. Behavior, consciousness. Yes. Uh, the, the, and, you know, Jung talked about archetypes as modes of perception. Um, Hellman really emphasized um, archetypes as um, um, sort of imaginative fields you know, but always there, the, 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 the qualitative whatness, you know, is what we're, you know, needing to pay attention to. And those are personified, you know, by mythic figures and, uh, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So when you're engaged in astrology as part of your praxis or your lifestyle, you must just be noticing synchronicities all of the time. Does that ever get distracting? <laughs> um, wow, that's such an interesting question. Um, no, I, I very much, I don't find synchronicities distracting. I, I think they're extraordinary. And to me, I relate to them as like invitations to stop and pay attention. Yeah. 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 You, you feel the same way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, but it, it just seems like with astrology, because you are talking about time and every moment in time related to the place related to your station. Uh, there are so many opportunities to notice these synchronicities that it could mm. take you away from your mundane responsibilities in the world. Like, Oh, I see. <laughs> right. I see. Yes. Well, you know, in, you know, in my own, I, I think that um, there are times when let's say there's more afoot and I might get really, caught in doing research and sort of responding to a synchronicity, i.e. seeing a particular pattern showing up in a number of charts um, or something in, in my own chart that I'm really interested in and the way that that's relating to something that I'm dealing with, you know, or trying to understand in my life. So there are, so there are these like discrete periods where there can be this real intense um, engagement with that. Um, so I think again, it, it, it comes down to, uh, sort of the, the temperature of the synchronicity, like how strong mm -hmm. it is versus, you know, when, when you're, when you practice with anything that very explicitly is dipped into and resonant to these patterns of life. Yeah. You have to start to make some, uh, sense of, you know, what really needs to be pursued and, and what just is part of the, the nature of the, of the work and, and what keeps showing up. Yeah. So yeah, there's going to be notes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So like noting synchronicities and really paying attention to the ones that seem significant because they yeah. feel like somewhat more charged or. Yeah. Yes. And I think that that, you know, are, you know, the way that that might relate to our dreams um, or other, um, you know, parts of the psyche in response to what's going on in life. I think that help underscores some of the 
the, the particular heat that something might, you know, really be carrying and, and wanting attention. Hmm. You mentioned, um, you know, a little uh, aspect of Jung and Hillman's thinking about archetypes where there's like a slight difference in the way that they might uh, frame it or think about it or describe archetypes. I'm wondering, um, what do you see as some significant differences between classical Jungian psychology and what Hillman developed? He's often considered a post-Jungian, and I don't know if he ever self-identified as that, but he definitely was um, kind of moving Jung's thinking forward in his own particular way, following yeah. his own interests in Greek myth and things like that, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, so um, that's a really good question. Um, I think that for Hillman, if, if we were to try to distinguish, like what's, I mean, it, it's an interesting thing. So uh, just kind of letting all the little thoughts sort of come into a, a little bit of order. I think that um, in many ways, Hillman has been one of the most um, dedicated um, depth psychologists or Jungians to Jung's like fundamental ideas. So on one hand, I think Hellman is incredibly true to Jung's formulations of the psyche and, and how to be present and how to work with the psyche and these sort of core insights that were Jung's. I think with, when it comes to Jungian psychology, that's where Hellman, you know, really kind of steps away. But mm. but to, but to the to the master Jung, I think there's an extraordinary closeness, and and that was very important to Hellman. So that's one hand. Uh, that's one part of it. But on but in terms of the Jung, like the way you, uh, we'd position Hellman in relationship to Jungian psychology, is that he really didn't go in for the sort of conceptual modeling of the psyche that I think you see, you know, develop, you know, Jungians developed. Mm -hmm. um, and he was also more interested in exploring what myth are we in when we're in our psychology? So he had this sort of meta question and, and concern um, for the very things that drive our perceptions or modalities of doing th this healing practice or, or whatever it is. So I would say then, you know, and I, um, you know, I'm, I'm core faculty at Pacifica in the Jungian and Archetypal Studies program. So we, we are, our mission in the program is to educate people in, you know, the, the core ideas that belong to these two fields and, and archetypal psychology, of course, being an offshoot of Jungian psychology. But I don't think there can be a really um, sharp cut between Jung and Hillman. I would say it's kind of a matter of emphases. And, mm. and it seems to me that Hillman really emphasized the qualitative imaginal field of the archetypes. Like that's where he was 
that's why myth and alchemy and the colors of alchemy um, were were so important because it, it was is an understanding that the archetype the archetypes of this of the collective unconscious they we experience them and are in contact with them through the forms of the imagination. And that's where myth and religion and literature and art, ritual and dance and theater, I mean, all of the kind of cultural outpourings of, of human civilization are so important because they are the expressions of the archetypal energies of life coming into form. Mm. Um, and so for Hillman, that's what we can look at. That's what we can hold and explore and circumambulate and, um, and then begin to imagine into psychologically in terms of our behavior or our consciousness or our, you know, uh, principal, um, ideas or concerns or values. Um, so yeah, so I I would say that it that, that it's it's the, the 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 qualitative emphasis that really I think uh, sets Hillman apart perhaps from Jung in some sense. Mm, or the 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 Jungians. The Jungians, yeah, yeah. The Jungians, right. Yeah, one thing you'll notice in Hillman's books is you'll never see diagrams of the the psyche, which <laughs> these Jungians really love trying to mm-hmm. map out the psyche in really clear and defined ways. And I mean, I'm a visual person. I really like those charts, but um, the right. map is not the territory for sure. There's no way right. a, a chart can describe the complexity of the psyche. Um, yeah, I think I think I really feel what. Uh, what you're talking about in terms of how Hillman's approach is distinguished from this kind of classical Jungian approach. And maybe one of the key things that jumps out for me is his, his uh, complete resistance to interpretation, Mm -hmm. to stepping back from the experience and trying to figure out what it means. Mm -hmm. Um, You hear him say things like that a lot, like the admonishment that, uh, we don't interpret the dream. The dream interprets us. Right. And as soon as I say the black snake in my dream is the devouring mother, I've killed the snake. Right. And so he was right. always saying like, don't kill the snake. What does the snake want? Uh, right. What is the snake doing now? You know, right. not just happening in the past in your dream, but the snake is here right now and, and things like that. So is that what you're talking about with that, uh, the qualitative experience? That's right. So there's another example that I that I, I really love, and um, um, Glenn Slater, who's my colleague as well as my husband, um, was the editor of Hillman's Senex and Puer volume in the Uniform Edition. So he's very very deeply steeped in Hillman's work. And there's an anecdote that Glenn often gives that he, of of what he heard. Uh, Hillman say during a talk Um, and I just think it's so like perfectly Hillman which is that it's this whole idea of like life is like a pearl necklace but don't worry about the string just pay attention to the pearls 
i.e. don't worry about the way this whole thing hangs together and like what it means and and like where did you start and where is it going and and like forget that pay attention to the pearls like these events I mean and you know one of Hellman's ways of defining soul is that it's it's events that become experiences right that that's soul that it's 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 the deepening of life events into those pearls of um who we are or know ourselves to be um so this this paying attention to the whatness that the things that we encounter and like letting the whole issue of the string or the individuation journey like where am i on my individuation path like letting all of that fall to the background and and paying attention to what's appearing like the snake um or you know the shattering betrayal um you know and 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 the way that life is uh, that that soul is made in those experiences of life that become these precious gems or jewels um that somehow um belong to us or to which we belong Mm. yeah i I like how you brought in even just uh the experience of life Mm -hmm. paying attention to that what what is actually happening in that experience without you know because it's always about that step back to analyze what's happening and then how do i get rid of it and the step back is already a defense from being in the experience itself and letting it uh cook you in the alchemical oven of life and maturation or something right mm-hmm. so he was yeah. very yeah it, the the pearl analogy made me smile because one of the ways i think about hillman as is like a deconstructionist like he really uh he never really talked about those structures that a lot of other Jungians have uh, gotten super infatuated with, you know, Um, always looking to see like, what's the mapping out the underlying structure of the psyche and all this kind of thing. And I never got that from him. And I, I sometimes say to people who are interested in this work is, you know, I say, be really careful with getting too enamored of Hillman right away Mm. um, because he is a, in my opinion, a deconstructionist and he can deconstruct things so much. And he's such a kind of poetic writer and he can really draw you into his ideas and uh, he can kind of leave you with no foundation if you're not careful. So Mm -hmm. I always suggest get a good grounding in some like classical Jungian theory, understand what the different structures are of the psyche that people have come up with and then like drop in some Hillman and like homeopathic doses. So you don't get too, (laughs) you don't get too enamored of the structural diagrams and all that stuff. You start to hold them more lightly and use them really as a map that, you know, we consciously know is not the territory. So let's not hold too tightly to that, but otherwise Hillman can really throw you for a loop, I think. Yeah, and I think that's something to do with his rhetorical style, which is that um, he'll argue the opposite position in in an effort to unpack and unfold and explore these these different grounds that we can stand on looking at things, um, and it can often we, we we you know 
you know, people in, in our program will talk about, oh, Hillman drives me crazy. Like, where does he stand? Like, what, like, yeah. what, what, what is his perspective? And it's like, well, it, you, it's, it, it, it shifts, it changes. And, and he's not interested in trying to keep a kind of cohesive, like theoretical position on something except for the great fundamentals, you know, which is the, the imaginative power of the psyche uh, myth as being the psyche's irreducible. I think one of the ways he puts it is that myth is the, the root like the root tongue, the root metaphors of the psyche. I mean, there are these fundamental things, um, but barring that um, he's not interested in being fixed you know, so yeah, I, I like your, your, the image of these, I get an image of like flower essences. It's like the, you know, like taking in a little tincture when this is new territory for people, for sure. Um, but Hillman too is so bold and brilliant and has such a deep, um, in many ways, uh, sort of, I, I I often feel reading Hillman that, and to sort of lean into the the astrological side, um, that in many ways his guiding uh, sort of astrological principle was Venus, because I I feel like his work, while intellectually brilliant and and his language and his incisive mind and his fresh metaphors and turn of language there's all this sort of um incredible mercury you know the the hermetic imagination going on mm-hmm. Un- not underneath that but perhaps suffusing that is 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 the love of the beauty of life and by beauty i don't just mean like what we find aesthetically pleasing but the 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 animated soulfulness of anything living and that that could be a a being that can be an idea um it can be a value and it was i just often feel that hellman was really in service to aphrodite but like the cosmic aphrodite it's like the the aphrodite of the cosmos of of the living sentient um, um sort of soul of the world you know, and and that and that and that belongs to Aphrodite, and, and one of her, you know, the 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 heavenly Aphrodite, Aphrodite Urania, that was part of her uh, mythic being, her her character, and it was related to beauty and justice and cosmic order, and and yeah, so I I mm. yeah, so that that piece I resonate to with him, with, yeah, with him, yeah. No, I get it. He was totally enamored with Aphrodite for sure. There's a lot of lover in him, uh, but also the the most prominent feature, you know, thinking archetypally about this person was definitely like Mercury. He's definitely like a trickster type. His writing can really wrap you up mm-hmm. um, in its contradictions and its turns of phrase, and um, yeah. So, hmm. It's interesting. So how does his his particular approach, you know, that phenomenological, experiential, reverent approach, how does that inform your approach to astrology? 
Hmm. Well, I, 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 I think this is all about um, the way in which the uh, my sense and, and and drawing directly from Hellman that that life, uh, the psyche, and then this craft that that can be employed in order to explore um, our nature, the quality of the time, and 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 it's suffused with these symbols that 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 it that this all has to be engaged imaginatively it has to be engaged in its own language and so images from myth and alchemy uh, poetry music i mean all of that is really the language of the soul and so for me astrology see i imagine that if people are interested in coming to have a, a reading with me or come to one of my classes it's because they they're they resonate with that. They resonate with the the need for rich imaginal language by which to um, to engage with and contemplate or reflect, work with um, what is happening in their life or who they are. Um, so for me, that's the that's that's Hillman's. Um, um, presence and influence in my approach to astrology. Um, that that this is a kind of um, astrology as a sort of cosmic poetic meditation. Hmm. Yeah, I was thinking of an imaginal sandbox or something mm -hmm. like. So, could you give an example of? how that might inform your reading. And this could be a theoretical example, or maybe if you could mention something about the astrological time that we're in now. I know it's mm -hmm. a it's a new moon today. Yeah. Um, but how would you then describe that in in an archetypal astrology way? You know, mm -hmm. how would that inform the way that you present the material or the data? Well, I mean, it, it it has a lot to do with the the specifics of a person's chart, and and um, you know, so so you know, let's say someone is um, just experiencing um, their they have a loss of just energy, a loss of vitality, like it could be a depression um, that they're just feeling somewhat disconnected and so we can obviously we can look at the chart and perhaps there's um in their birth chart perhaps there's some challenges regarding their mars right mars is is, is related to a certain level if our of our um sort of young um um vitality and um sense of like fire, you know, the, the way that we move with some um, fired in, um, activity into life. So there could be that. It could possibly be, you know, a Saturn transit to their Mars. I mean, you know, so there are all these different potential configurations. But to just say to someone, oh, well, you've got Saturn sitting on your Mars. Well, okay. 
that doesn't really mean anything. Even for an astro- even if I'm talking to another astrologer, that's information, but that isn't an opening. You see? Yeah, I think that's an interesting distinction. So it um, it explains, mm-hmm. but does not mean anything. No. So, so the meaning I think comes into the way we begin to explore what that might feel like or move like or look like. So we start to talk about like images of the devouring father, which belongs to Saturn as part of the Senex archetype. Um, we could be looking at their natal Mars if they have a Mars in Aries. Uh, let's just say that is mm, like the warrior, right? So this is and warriors by nature can do cannot be contained. Any um, um, thwarting of their capacity to move isn't is in and of itself a kind of death. So we can be exploring just the um, that innate sort of need for um, independence. And, and, and movement. And so to kind of, so this whole just move into um, the personified imagination, and that can be through myth. It could, sometimes people will share dream figures of theirs because that's their own psyche's articulation of, you know, these places, these energies. Um, but for me, I very often move into either mythic figures and stories to help draw these astrological principles into their personified animated being. Um, or we can talk about alchemy, which um, is more descriptive of process, mm-hmm. like kinds of movement, you know? Um, so, but, it, but see, getting people to feel into, to resonate with qualities of energy or figures that are, um, that, that really seem to be inside the experience that they're having or particular memories of themselves at a particular age, all those things, I think gets, it, it, it gets us moving with the psyche um, and that's what starts to lead for insights to open. See, I, I think astrology, uh, you know, my, my way of looking at it, astrology doesn't provide answers. I think it provides extraordinary openings for further exploration. It helps us like pinpoint areas like, oh, what's going on with this Mars? Okay, what's, what's happening with desire? Like, and, and then someone's like, well, I don't know. I, I've sort of lost a sense of like what it is that I really want. It's like, okay, we've got to get into that. Like, what, what is that? What, what is the wanting that lives in this? And um, mm. yeah. Yeah. I, um, I'm studying with Steve Eisenstadt at uh, Pacifica, okay. doing some yeah. dream work training yeah. with him. And one of the things he's always talking about, and I think this is probably from Hillman, is this idea of dreaming the dream forward. Mm. So not just freezing the dream in amber and having it be a, I don't know, a thing locked away that we can then study and analyze, but finding ways to continue the dream and see where these energies want to move, where there are openings for 
freedom or change. And so thinking about, okay, you're taking a look at someone's chart and you're helping them to develop this, this story around whatever's going on in their chart in their life. So like that idea of Saturn bearing down on someone's Mars energy, maybe the story gets invoked of uh, a warrior locked up in a cell by a tyrant king or something. Would you then work with people in active imagination to help them uh, keep that that story alive? Or what are some of the ways that you help them to work with whatever's happening? Yeah, well, um, I, I don't explicitly lead people into active imaginations. I tend to, I mean, as these stories come up, I think in the reading, um, you know, people will sort of take it with them and, and explore it. So f- for me, I feel maybe I'm more of a provocateur in that sense, in in that I I feel that my my work is to evoke and help help people connect to the the figures or the images that are at work in them. And as um, uh, indicated by the symbolism of the chart, I mean, those are pointers. The symbols in astrology are... Uh, on the one hand, they're multivalent, but they're also very explicit. You know, I mean, zodiac signs, there's a, a constellation of figures and, and landscapes and sort of archetypes that belong to each zodiac sign. So it's it's both, um, yeah, that there's a particularity, even though there might be a great variety of expression. Um, so so I I think of my work as helping people connect with what that is for them and then um, for them to accompany that, to explore that further on. Um, I often pose what I would understand as the kinds of questions that Saturn is asking. And then that becomes something that people can then write into or reflect into after the session. Um, So yeah, so so my my focus, you know, I'm is is translating the astrological symbols into life via the mythic or alchemical imagination, and then having that be what people can then take and then um, you know continue to explore. I mean, through active imagination or dream work or you know, they're in their analysis or therapy. I mean, whatever it is that they're doing. Hmm. So yeah. you would kind of leave, leave, leave that up to them to discover the way to, um, to actualize it in their life in some way. Yeah. Because I'm not a therapist. Like I, I sort hmm. of see, I, I, to me, I, I see a, a sort of line, um, you know, in, in that way. And, and I think that, um, the, the deepening into a relationship with these imaginal figures, especially with active imagination, because that's so, um, I mean, traditionally that's drawn from one's dreams, right? That you're, you're deepening into the dream, just as you said, um, you know, the, the, my, my sensibility is that the moment you really start working with someone in their dreams, you're really stepping into their 
into the psyche. And, and I think that that's a very um, serious um, thing and, and, and it's a much more therapeutic thing. Whereas my approach to astrology is, is, is more um, sort of drawing things out than for the individual to, to work on and, and develop, you know, you know, as, as it serves them and supports them in what they're doing. Mm. I think it's good that you raised that point about kind of scope of practice. I guess I had assumed that you were also a licensed clinician um, mm-hmm. because no. of the, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you see a real distinction there and I, I appreciate that because uh, yeah, I think the lines get, pretty blurry with things like astrological consultation or even something like tarot reading. Mm. Um, You know, people are picking up a lot of therapeutic language. Um, Instagram is like rife with, uh, (laughs) you know, social media, psychotherapists sharing a lot of knowledge, which I think is great. People are starting to have more awareness around mental health. Um, But I think it also leads to a a blurring of professional lines in that way. So I wonder, do you have anything to say about that or how you guide your students in that? Yeah, well, um, so our program is not a clinical program. So, you know, people are coming to be in the Jungian and Archetypal Studies because they're they might be already therapists. We have a number of students typically that are, and they're just wanting to deepen their understanding of this material so that it really informs and kind of vitalizes the work that they're doing. So, um, yeah, I mean, so I, I feel like the boundaries are pretty clear in terms of what people expect coming into our program. Um, So, you know, for me, I think it's a matter of, um, you know, recognizing the territory, like what really is part of the therapeutic container in that very sort of traditional sense, dream work, um, you know, really getting into, um, you know, trauma and, you know, that's work that needs you know, that kind of work requires much more consistent discussion and and presence and all of that. Whereas an astrology session, usually it's, it's one session. Maybe you meet the same person every six months or year, but it's, it's really, it's more in a way it's like, it's an event. Like it's, 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 it's some kind of um, almost ritual that we, we step into this kind of ritual place and there's something very sacred and deep going on. And I, you know, I, I, I hope that it, I, I, that's a point that I, I want to make that I, I really feel astrology is a sacred art and, and it, and, um, that that's my sensibility and that can be th- that, um, the depth of that can be honored while at the same time knowing that, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to heal or fix the problem that someone has come in with, but I can be very attentive and with a great amount of respect to the complexity of a situation that I, I won't be able to know. Um, we can um, carefully, considerately, um, thoughtfully explore those parts of a chart that then can hopefully lead 
to greater insight on, on behalf of the person who, you know, I'm, I'm working with in that moment. Um, but it's like, it's like offering, trying to find the apt metaphors or mythic images or um, analogies that give the person a, a greater feeling for what they're dealing with and how they then translate that specifically into their, their particular problem or situation. I mean, that's really theirs, but I'm trying to like um, fan the fire of their imagination in relationship to that work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ignite uh, more curiosity, um, which will lead to inquiry. And yeah, yeah. I'm reminded of, I think it was Jung's quote that uh, neurosis is suffering without meaning. That's right. That's right. I know, it's not amazing. I mean, doesn't that just say <laughs> it all? Yes, right. <laughs> like, because right. suffering is a given in this life, you know. Buddha said so. I believe him. In my experience, that's true. <laughs> but if we can um, infuse our life, the suffering and the joy and all of it with a sense of deeper meaning um, and uh, the larger perspective that things like our dreams and mythology offer us, mm -hmm. it makes it a heck of a lot easier to bear the suffering right. that is unavoidable. Yeah. See, I think one of the things that's healing, I, you're, you're, you're absolutely right, Brian. And I, I think one of the things that's he, the, the healing potential of astrology, um, whether one talks about myth or not in an astrology session, I, I don't think this is necessary. I think astrology in, in the, the sort of meta sense can be a healing practice because of the way it opens people up to the idea that their lives are embedded in a cosmos, in a sort of cosmological happening. The planets are moving somehow by this um, uh, synchronistic correlation. Those movements are in some kind of accord with the movements of my my feeling, my, my mind, events in my life, um, they're somehow related to my character. Um, and to locate ourselves, to feel ourselves vesseled within a much larger cosmological story, I think is actually healing. So, and, and, and so, so I think astrology does that again, independent if someone is is you know dips into the myths as ways of amplifying um the the astrological symbols but i think that the, the myth when we do that though when we do turn to myths and things like alchemy we get an even closer tighter um hit of the way in which i mean to put it in a very sort of helmanian way our souls are embedded in myth and to find the myths that seem to echo or mirror some part of us, I think, again, 
see, see, it, it, it moves us into a larger story and see Hellman talked about this as being, this is in his, in his, in his magnum opus, Revisioning Psychology. This is related to the fourth movement called dehumanizing, um, which is how when we move out of a personalistic vision of who we are, and we begin to recognize that there are these daimons or gods or the soul has needs. And part of our responsibility is to cultivate those needs, to respond to them with curiosity and attentiveness and respect. See, we're not caught up in our small ego anymore, that maybe we are in some sort of um, deep relationship with um, a, a much larger plural plurality that makes up who we are. And that when we have a responsibility to that, we have a responsibility to the soul. See, that that's that like not taking things personally. See, I think astrology gives us a hit of that. And even if people don't think about it in these terms, I think this is what's on some level like working on them. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Like I was thinking as you're speaking about um, kind of like the core fears that I've had and probably everybody, I think it's universal, but um, you know, the sense that I'm all alone, that nobody understands me, um, things like that. And when you start to see your experience reflected in stories and myths, whether they're Greek myths or a movie that you watched last night on Netflix, there's a resonance there. And um, yeah, like a sense that I'm not alone, that I'm not the first person and the only person to go through this, whatever it is. Right. And uh, yeah, so the... I mean, there's something about astrology too, like even without the Greek mythology, when you read someone's chart, it's already a story. Yes. Right? Even without um, getting into another reference. Right. And I mean, and I would say it's already stories. I mean, I think a chart is, there are multiple stories, they're not, not, just, not just one. And um, I mean, I do think... Yeah, it's like um, Game of Thrones. There's multiple storylines going on, and, <laughs> and you can drop in on any particular storyline at right. any moment, right. and it's a whole different kind of dynamic going on, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, see, I, I do think the myths are there. They're embedded in it. I mean, the planets carry the names of the gods, so we're already in the mythic imagination, whether we're, you know, thinking about it. Um, but Yes, when you when you put Mars and Saturn together, there's um, there's there's a way that those two energies dance together. They're in, in different ways, but there there are some fundamental principles that tempos or rhythms that are going to be there, um, or, or or be the cause of the trouble, or be the 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 giftedness. Um, so yeah, yeah, they're there. Well, you know, learning a little bit about astrology through osmosis, um, <laughs> you know, I try. I bought Debbie uh, Richard Tarnas's book, Cosmos and Psyche, because mm -hmm. um, I saw it at the used bookstore in Montreal. 
And I thought, I don't know, this looks impressive. I don't know who this guy is, but <laughs> I know what Psyche is. I know what Cosmos is. This sounds pretty cool. Yeah. And so I, I brought it home to her and she was like, oh my God, this book is like really well respected and revered and it's a magnum opus and right. all this. Um, but definitely one of the most intimidating books I've ever seen in my life. Like mm. not only is it like five pounds, but the type is like very tiny and <laughs> densely packed and there's footnotes and wow, mm. that guy is talk about magician type, uh, you know, real high intellect, yeah. but a little bit that I have picked up has created a, you know, I never thought about it really um, until this moment, but it's created a psychological transformation in me. So mm. when Mars stops being just a name of a planet and it becomes uh, this fiery warrior god, um, it changes my relationship to it. And then even realizing that the days of the week are named after these figures and archetypal energies changes my relationship to time and and bringing attention to like well, what is the quality of this um this mercury's day we're recording this on tuesday and it's kind of it's hard to get until you learn other languages so it became yeah, the french is the easiest yeah. yeah it became way more apparent to me when um i was living in montreal and learning mm. french and going oh it's it's all right there but in english it's kind of hidden right mm. um but when you realize okay mercury's day well what's mercury all about well maybe that would be a good day to book uh an interview with saffron because uh <laughs> he's like a he's a messenger he's a god of like communication and right mm -hmm. so um that like just just that knowing what's behind these names deepens my experience of life and enriches my life and gives it a, a greater sense of meaning. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's actually quite simple the way that it can positively en enrich your life. Um, yeah, just that, I don't know, just sharing that yeah, it just no, kind of like I, hit home for me. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I, you know, I think that, that, that you're, you're giving another example of this, sort of um, uh, this idea of qualities of time. I mean, just that if we imagine then that the week itself, that there are certain principles that um, were understood by, you know, the ancients to be um, revered or belonging, that this particular day belongs to this God. And so activities that fall under their auspices are favored. I mean, that gives us a whole different relationship to the week and to our time and and what might be invited, um, you know. So this is, it, it's a very imaginative way. It's a very ancient way of thinking. I mean, this, this is the case, you know, in the Yoruba tradition, the days of the week are uh, belonging to particular Ifa, their gods. I mean, this, this, is, this is a very... Um, um, deep, old, primary modality of what it is to be human, which is to be in some um, connection, awareness, attentiveness to the powers that participate in the very like panoply of life. 
it's only, and you, you, you write about this on your website. Um, it's only in our modern and particularly modern Western world that, you know, the ego and our rational consciousness has sort of eclipsed the idea that there are any other forms of intelligence to which we are inextricably linked. And so astrology is a very clear way that we can imagine back into that kind of awareness. But then of course, so is depth psychology. I mean, depth psychology is all about the um, uh, awakening to and relating to our inner multiplicity, isn't it? Yeah, the psyche, you know? And, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's just like, they're different modalities, right? Mm. Like even in my yoga practice, it's very symbolic and archetypal what mm -hmm. I'm doing. It's like an mm -hmm. internalization of ritual that yeah. I can see reflections of in alchemical text, you know, this marriage of the sun and the moon that I'm enacting through my breathing practice, you know, breathing through different nostrils and equalizing those energies. Like, so there's all of these different ways to engage, but I mean, this is the thing. Once I um, came to the archetypal understanding, you know, first, I think maybe through, I remember trying to read Hillman years ago, and I just, I couldn't get it. So I had a blue fire sitting on my shelf for 15 years or something. <laughs> and it wasn't until I was in my 40s and had like a foundational understanding of Jungian concepts that I, ah, oh, I could actually penetrate or I could receive it, whatever. Um, yeah, I don't know um, where I was going with that. But uh yeah, I lost my train of thought. I got thinking about my bookshelf. <laughs> it's Mercury's yeah, day. <laughs> yeah, and it's a very yeah. I know the moment we start thinking about our bookshelves, we're like, oh well, yes, it, it draws our <laughs> our thoughts into a million different directions. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't even pick up the thread, no, but okay. uh, that's fine. Yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm not a professional broadcaster. <laughs> <laughs> Just a person who's curious about arcane things. <laughs> well, maybe that's a good place to end it. We've been yeah. uh, speaking for a while and maybe okay. it's a sign of my um, mid-afternoon slump, but um, I'd like you maybe just to tell people uh, what's coming up in terms of any courses that you're offering. Are you doing oh. things online now? Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um so at the very end of July, I will be teaching a, a public program through Pacifica on the elemental imagination of the zodiac signs. Mm -hmm. And so this is going to be very much um, based on a lot of what we, you and I have been talking about um, and Hillman's approach. And so I'm going to be exploring each sign of the zodiac, but particularly through fire, earth, air, and water and the way in which alchemy and uh, uh, alchemy's incredibly particularity around the elements and, and um, sort of kinds of fire and kinds of water and processes of change that happen via the fire, calcinatio or water and salutio, and, and the way that we can see that at work in the consciousness that belongs to the different zodiac signs. So this is gonna be a blend of Greek myth and alchemy to just really get us imagining into the elemental intelligence 
at work in the different zodiac signs. So that's going to be a six week program. Um, so um, that's the next big thing that I have uh, going on that I'm preparing. Hmm. And people can find that on the Pacifica website or um, on my website. Is, is um, like bringing that, those alchemical ideas into it adds uh, another layer of complexity to it. Like there's more, like alchemy can be pretty far out and very mm. complex and very mercurial. There's no, yes. there's no clear um, concept anywhere. Like nobody right. agrees on anything. Right. Um, what's the, what does that add to the archetypal astrology? Well, I think, um, you know, so not approaching alchemy in the sense of like teaching people alchemy and trying to understand like the stages and the levels, I, I'm, I'm letting all of that fall away and really just drawing on some of the core ideas in alchemy about how there are different, for example, different kinds of fire. There's terrestrial fire there's celestial fire and those things um, when understood psychologically are related to like the ways in which we get inspired about something. That's a very Sagittarian celestial fire, like being caught with an idea and then going off in pursuit of that, you know, the, the whole sort of fiery nature of being on a quest mm. um, as opposed to we could call like a metabolic or terrestrial fire of Aries and that whole uh, kind of fundamental um, sort of drive to compete and, you know, to kind of get into a, a sort of um, sensate, um, um, you know, um, uh, pushing um, or, um, you know, the, 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 the instinct to, uh, go as far as your fear will allow you to go in order to discern something of the depth of your courage. See, I think that's a very metabolic alchemical fire to do that, to be drawn to do that, which is very Aries. So I'm, I'm mm. drawing on in a way like the images of alchemy to just get us imagining into um, these kind of movements, you know, that that belong to the, uh, the, the, the psychology of the sign, so to speak. So, um, yeah, so, mm. so, yeah, it's, 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 so again, it's very Hellmanian. See that, so Jung and Edinger were much more perhaps, um, process oriented with alchemy like the stages but hellman is more like you dip in and you take <laughs> what's um nourishing to 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 get into the ideas and so I, i'm more in that mode mm. yeah it's, it sounds like it adds some really interesting nuances to um what's already there in astrology or even like a yeah. rudimentary understanding of elemental astrology. Yes. Cause yeah, those different types of fire that you described, mm -hmm. as soon as you started to describe it, I totally get it. Like yeah. I've been thinking about rituals of transformation quite a lot 
these mm-hmm. days, particularly as they relate to um, plant medicines and psychedelics mm-hmm. and psychedelic therapies coming into vogue now. And mm-hmm. one of the things I think is really lacking is that terrestrial fire that mm-hmm. happens when I go on a pilgrimage to a place like Peru and in the jungle, like I have to take my body mm-hmm. somewhere. It's different than taking a a meditative journey in my mind as I sit in lotus posture, you know, and my imagination is traveling through the stars. But that sense that, no, I actually have to get my body somewhere and my body has to undergo an ordeal or a transformation of some kind, as well as my psychology, you know, Mm -hmm. I really get a sense of that difference there. So Mm -hmm. that sounds really interesting. And I know at least one person is going to sign up for that. Oh, really? Oh, well, great. Yeah, Debbie? De- Debbie's totally going to sign up for that. Oh, that's great. That's great. Wonderful. Yeah. Great. And so um, your website is, is the I. Correct. Yes. Um, and, um, and then Pacifica is simply pacifica.edu. So the information on that program is available on either website yeah Mm -hmm. and your instagram is really great too i love the Mm -hmm. images that you select (laughs) thank you no they're really they're beautiful and they're evocative and uh the astrology that you put out there in the post is um just like just enough to get me kind of like get the imaginative juices flowing uh Mm but not too much to overwhelm a lay person like me. So I, I appreciate that. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I think my whole um, idea there is that I, I, I don't necessarily want to translate what the astrological, let's say transit is, but I trying to give an image that really, as you just said, like evoke something of what belongs to that archetypal configuration and letting people just resonate with it and, and sort of develop their own sort of um, archetypal literacy, you know, but in a visual mm. way. <laughs> so, I, yeah, so that, that, that's, that, that's the fantasy at work, at least. <laughs> I like Instagram that. There's, there's been such a push in psychology over the past number of years to help people develop more um, emotional intelligence. But I like this idea of helping people develop archetypal intelligence. <laughs> mm. oh. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's part of my mission too. Is yeah, uh, I I noticed that in your um your journal blog post about like the four, you know, the warrior and the magician. Yeah, I I thought that was really well done. So yeah, well, that's drawn on the a lot of the work of uh, Robert Moore. Right. Uh, who <laughs> had this great adversarial relationship with James Hillman that I don't know we shouldn't get into, but I oh, I'm love... not familiar with this this his, this chapter from history. Oh well, it's fascinating because they they obviously interacted quite a bit. Um, you know, Robert Moore is from from Texas, and then they both spent time in the men's movement that Robert mm-hmm. Bly and Michael Mead uh, got going. So they crossed paths quite a lot, and Robert Moore had some um, issues with Hillman being a post-Jungian, and so you'd always hear them like make comments. Uh, mostly you'd hear Robert Moore make more comments about Hillman, mm-hmm. uh, but I just I love 
their kind of relationship because they're different types and mm -hmm. you can see where they like rub up against each other. But um, I think there's room for both. And I think like, because Moore is such a structuralist, like he really gets into all the, all the deep structures of the psyche. And he's very much a, um, he was a scholar of comparative religion mm -hmm. and spirituality. And so he, he integrates a lot of the structuralists and, you know, Hillman was like a, post-structuralist and so there's all that it's just kind of yeah. fun you know kind yeah. of look back in time and uh you know that whole period in the 90s when Hillman was getting a lot of attention mm -hmm. for his work and uh you know I think more as well and in, in a particular realm especially like with the men's movement um that's just kind of a, a special time and I love listening back to old recordings of lectures from that period um you know pre-internet when people were buying books and going to lectures and, right. you know, subscribing to weird little Jungian newsletters mm -hmm. and, you know, to the spring journal that uh, Hillman right. started, like mm -hmm. um, just totally, it's, it's fun for me as a child of the nineties to listen back to that. Cause I was too young to really engage with any of that stuff at the time, mm -hmm. but um, there's a particular vibe to it all that, mm -hmm that I remember and that yeah. I, I kind of am nostalgic for at times in this yeah. hyper fast mercurial internet age. <laughs> right. It's just yes. kind of slower, you know, like yeah. listening to a lecture by Robert Moore right now, it's seven hours long. Yeah. You know, it's it. like, I just, yeah, I, I totally <laughs> just going to slip into that mode for <laughs> half a day and it's great. <laughs> yeah. It's great. Well, thanks so much. Before we spoke, sometimes I'll do this and I don't always tell people about it, but I pulled a tarot card and oh. I pulled uh, La Papesse. Oh, really? Yeah. And she's very much, I think, uh, reflective of, of you and your your um, scholarly aptitude and you're willing to like sit in the, the depths. And yeah, mm. so that's great. Mm. That's an image for, yeah. for me. Yeah. Wow. And, and maybe for the listeners too, look up that card from yeah, the Marseille deck. Mm. It's my favorite. Mm. Well, thanks so much for spending time with me. It's been really fun. I think, um, you know, I asked Debbie you know, what I should talk to you about. And she just said, I want to know more about how she got into astrology and how she weaves the archetypal psychology into it and all that. Yeah. And I think we really covered that. And yeah, you know, I think if I have a good sense of the way this all melds together, then I think anybody with more knowledge than me will uh, get something out of it too. So mm. thank well, you. Thank, thank you for your really thoughtful questions. And um, it was just a great conversation. So uh, really just lovely. Yeah. yeah, well, take care. Yeah, you too, Brian. The Medicine Path is produced by Brian James on unceded Coast Salish territory, Vancouver Island, Canada. For more information, visit brianjames.ca. Music by Olive Artizoni, a.k.a. Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields. Until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.